scholars and saints hope that you are all well this is wednesday where i am recording so you can have your video or well, it's not really a video a podcast lecture on thursday so happy thursday to you i definitely skipped my hegel class today i hate doing that but the weather was just so horrible it was snowing raining hailing and I was like, oh, I just can't. I wish that my class were remote today, but I don't think I could really email the professor and ask him at the last minute. So anyway, I'm at home with the heater on, just reading The Women Who Run With Wolves and maybe a little Heidegger later because I just feel like it. But now I am going to with you, continue Byung Chul Han's Vida Contemplativa, because I think that it's just interesting and it's relatable to many of us. I'm just reminding you that he is talking about the loss of inactivity in our lives, that we're losing the ability to be inactive, and for the German, one of the definitions or one of the yeah, <laughs> the, de- the meanings, the definitions of that word um, would be to be unemployed, which comes from the Latin implicare or to implicate. And so it is, so he is calling for us to avoid entanglement with achievement production society. And we're still in the first chapter on page seven. In Questions Convivales, Plutarch describes a ritual for exercising ravenosinus. In Agamben's reading, this ritual serves the purpose of expelling a certain form of eating, devouring or engorging like wild beasts in order to satiate a hunger that is by definition insatiable, and thus clearing a space for another modality of eating, one that is festive and human, one that can begin only once the hunger of an ox has been expelled. Festivals are free from the needs of mere life. Eating becomes contemplative. Eating in this respect is not a malakcha, an activity directed toward an aim, but an inoperativity and minucha, a sabbath of nourishment. Ritual practices in which inactivity plays a role elevate us above mere life. And I feel like philosophers really like, I mean, of course, I'm just reading translations in English, but Hegel talks about, like, and I'm reading the philosophy of right now and, like, mere freedom or mere, it's always mere something, and you know that's not good. Fasting and asceticism explicitly distance themselves from living a survival, from the needs and necessities of mere life. They represent a kind of luxury, and this forms them a festive character. They are characterized by contemplative calmness. For Benjamin, fasting initiates us into the secrets of food. Fasting sharpens the senses so that they discover secret scents in the most unexceptional food. 
When Benjamin involuntarily entered into a state of fasting while in Rome, he felt that here was an unrepeatable opportunity to unleash my senses into the folds and gorges of the most unassuming raw fruit and vegetables, melons, wine, ten varieties of bread or nuts, so as to identify a scent I had never known before. I think that's interesting. I would like to know what the reasons were for his involuntary state of fasting in Rome. I agree. Okay, so first of all, food in Europe is amazing, just already. It's delicious, but I have definitely found myself hungry on certain occasions in various countries. Um, Ireland, Germany, Italy, maybe Spain. Um, it just depends which countries I run out of money and, um, or it's not like consistent and this is when I was younger when I the first time I went to Europe backpacking for four months I didn't have a job it was just the money that I brought with me and then and I just couldn't uh, I, I guess I ran out in four months or probably before that and then the second backpacking trip I lasted eight months and I did have a job I taught remotely just not enough classes so I feel like I could do it again um, if I could teach full-time online of course you have to sort of if you want to do this in Europe you have to toggle between the Schengen area and outside the Schengen area uh, 90 days on and 90 days off but you can live like that forever if you want you just can't um, like, I don't know, have a visa for no reason, and so you can't really work while you're there, um, within the country, but like I said, if you have, like, a remote job, then, uh, they'll let you go. But the point is, when I finally did eat food, like, it could be the, it was the most simple dish, I remember it in Berlin, um, it was just this dish of ravioli and like a uh, some kind of sauce and it was heaven it was the most divine thing and it's you know I don't think that depending where you are in the world and your your state um a lot of us don't let ourselves get really famished so it's interesting he's bringing up this Ritual fasting renews life by enlivening the senses. It gives back to life its vitality, its radiance. Under the imperative of health, however, fasting puts itself in the service of survival. It loses its contemplative, festive dimension. It has to optimize naked life for its better functioning. Even fasting can, in this way, take on the form of survival. So I think he's talking about, you know, I don't know, maybe intermittent fasting, um, for purposes of health and weight. So remember, he is trying to introduce possibilities into life that are engaged in for no specific aim. Although, I guess, having the aim of whatever emotional effects inactivity presents us I mean, I guess that is an aim, like you know how you might benefit, and you're doing it because you might benefit. Um, but I think it's the specific aim of achieving something that 
he would say is less valuable, I guess. Inactivity as such is spiritual fasting and it therefore has a healing effect. The compulsion of production transforms inactivity into a form of activity in order to exploit it. Thus, even sleep is these days regarded as an activity. The so-called power nap is an activity of sleep. Even dreams are turned into a resource. The technique of lucid dreaming is used to optimize physical and mental abilities during sleep. We extend the compulsion of performance and optimization even into our sleep. It is possible that in the future, humans will abolish both sleep and dreams on the grounds of inefficiency. For a long time, I would go to bed early is the famous opening sentence of Marcel Proust's A la recherche du temps perdu. Early translates the French expression de bonne heure, longtemps, je me suis couché de bonne heure. Sleep introduces the hour of happiness, bonheur. With sleep begins that more truthful hour when my eyes close to the things of the outer world. Sleep is a medium of truth. We see the truth only once we enter into an activity. Sleep reveals a true internal world that lies behind the things of the external world, which are mere semblance. The dreamer delves into the deeper layers of being. Proust believed that the inner life continuously weaves new threads between events and creates a dense texture of relations in which nothing exists in isolation. Truth is a relational process. Everywhere it creates similarities. Truth takes place the moment a writer takes two different objects, states the connection between them. Truth and life too can be attained by us only when, by comparing a quality common to two sensations, we succeed in extracting their common essence and in reuniting them to each other, liberated from the contingencies of time within a metaphor. Sleep and dreams are privileged places for truth. They suspend the separations and delimitations that dominate wakefulness. Things reveal their truth in that thoroughly alive and creative sleep of the unconscious, a sleep in which the things that have barely touched us succeed in carving an impression, in which our sleeping hands take hold of the key that turns the lock, the key for which we have sought in vain. Activity and action are blind to truth. They touch only the surface of things. Hands that are determined to act will not find the key to truth. That key falls into the hands of the sleeper. Proust in search of lost time is one drawn out dream. The memoir involuntaire is an epiphany, a source of happiness, and as such it is at home in the realm of inactivity. It resembles a door that opens as if by magic. Happiness does not belong to the order of knowledge or causality. It has something of sorcery and magic about it. But it is sometimes just at the moment when we think that everything is lost, that the intimation arrives which may save us. One has knocked at all the doors which lead nowhere, and then one stumbles without knowing it on the only door through which one can enter, which one might have sought in vain for a hundred years, and it opens of its own accord. Sleep and boredom are states of inactivity. Sleep is the highest point of physical relaxation, whereas boredom is the highest point of mental relaxation. So I guess, you know, I've heard people say that we don't let ourselves get bored anymore. Um, you know, and I think a way to experience that, especially in this day and age, is to see how we feel when we put away our phones and our laptops. You know, sometimes I'll, you know, turn them off and put them in the closet, kind of stow them away. And I think that this silence 
depending on, I mean, depending on if your house is quiet, <laughs> where you live is quiet. Um, but even if it's, uh, you know, not necessarily a silence, but you're not aware of all the sounds, you know, maybe your roommate or your kids or your partner in the other room, or now you can hear the wind and you have to pay attention. I think our bodies are going to search for something to look at and observe and pay attention to and examine. Um, I know we could, you know, maybe like sit and kind of stare and reflect, but I guess Han would accept that as well. Um, but I think that he would would say that being distracted on the internet is a symptom of being burned out and it would be a kind of leisure time that would be focused on work like the the work gaze and it's not necessarily something that has the magic that he's talking about or the nourishment that he's talking about or the play that he's talking about and i think that we can know whether we are kind of following what han wants us to experiment with or not um, by how we feel you know how do you feel when you have just sat outside and read a book for pleasure not thinking about the next thing you have to do or how much time you have or um, you know you're not reading the book for necessarily for class even if it's for class it's not like for class right because you're you're kind of just enjoying it and reading it for its own sake, even if you didn't have it for class, I don't know. Um, <laughs> if that helps bring a nuance, because you might say, well, the only books I read are for class, but it's the mindset and approach, I think. What we can shelve mentally, um, you know, is what we're doing energy giving and life giving? Do we feel renewed and restful? Or do we feel sort of drained? It's like when people come back from a vacation and they say they need a vacation from their vacation. You know, maybe that, I've never experienced that, I don't think. Um, maybe it just depends on how you are structuring your vacation or approaching your vacation, or whoever says that, they are. Um, you know, with plans and strategies and we have to make the most of it and I have to see these five things or the way others of us vacation, like myself, you just know where you're going, you maybe, or maybe not, know the, the place you're gonna sleep when you get there, and you just kind of wander around and explore, and you come upon places, and you just try to find your way back, and that way you can kind of feel new experiences, and feel the city or the town that you're in, and that's definitely um, what I like to do. I think the other way, if you're on a schedule, um, it can be kind of stressful. I think that adventure finds you when you just leave yourself open to it. Benjamin calls boredom a warm gray fabric lined on the inside with the most lustrous and colorful of silks. And in this fabric, we wrap ourselves when we dream. Boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. That bird's nests, however, are rapidly falling apart, and thus the gift of listening is lost. 
Experience in the genuine sense does not arise out of work and performance. And I guess another thing I want to say is that suggesting that one fast for the pleasure of inactivity really, um, I think, indicates whom uh, Han is writing for and whom he really is not thinking of at all. Because, I mean, this advice seems a bit cringe when I just think about the people in the world who are hungry without choice because they are, you know, kind of affect, they're, they're affected by poverty. And so, so I don't know. I don't think Han really cares though how it sounds. <laughs> it's just my, uh, my guess. I think that he, well, after reading basically all of his books that have been translated into English, um, I know that he is writing from a place of privilege. And sometimes I think that's why most readers, because I don't think most readers are going to be at the, at the level of privilege that he must enjoy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm making assumptions, but um, just a lot of times I'm just thinking, where is he coming from? What world is he living in? And I think it could just be a difference of socioeconomic status. I don't know. What do you think? Experience in the genuine sense does not arise out of work and performance. It cannot be create, created through activity. Rather, it presupposes a particular form of passivity and inactivity. To undergo an experience with something, be it a thing, a person, or a god, means that this something befalls us, strikes us, comes over us, overwhelms, and transforms us. Experience is due to a giving and receiving. Its medium is listening. But the noise of contemporary information and communication puts an end to the community of listeners. No one is listening. Everyone is playing to the gallery. Now that's an interesting phrase. I don't know if I'm super familiar with that. Playing to the gallery. Inactivity is time-consuming. It requires a long-whiling an intense contemplative lingering. In an era of rushing in which everything is short-term, short of breath and short-sighted, it is rare. Today, the consumerist form of life prevails everywhere. In this form of life, every need must be satisfied at once. We are impatient if we are told to wait for something to slowly ripen. All that matter are short-term effects and quick gains. Actions are reduced to reactions. Experiences are diluted and become events. Feelings are impoverished and become emotions or effects. We have no access to reality. Reality reveals itself only to contemplative attention. So it's kind of, uh, you know, taking a walk in a forest and being in your head, maybe thinking about work or thinking about decisions you have to make or maybe thinking about when you're going to be finished with the walk and so everything is very time-based 
but to go out of time is to be lost in the experience and walk through without again really thinking of what comes next just kind of imagining you are a wanderer through a forest and that's what you're going to do for eternity so you know try to enjoy it and get lost in it um it's definitely i think a switch that some of us have to make but then you but then i think to relate this back to what i just read in han reality what's real what's right before you what's present becomes there for you to encounter and experience it is also you know, this also reminds me of Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now and the difference between, you know, um, being aware and paying attention and actually seeing and kind of missing everything in the race to nowhere. We are becoming ever less able to endure boredom, so our ability to have experiences is withering. The dream bird is already threatened with extinction in the analog world of rustling newspaper leaves. In the woods of illustrated journals, he, the dream bird, must perish, and he also no longer has a home in what we do. The leisure that gave humans, oh, I pronounced that like halfway between Europe and American, leisure, leisure, I know. Um, the creating hand does not act, it listens. The internet where we cannot see the wood, and I know I say Europe, I mean like, I don't know, British, Irish, like, um, accent <laughs> or pronunciation. And that reminds me of, and I always think about this, when I went into a cafe in Ireland and I was asking for chamomile tea, and I cannot for the life of me, I can never remember how... It's supposed to be pronounced in Ireland, but the barista had no clue what I was asking about. Finally, like she figured it out. <laughs> it's it's not pronounced. Maybe it's not pronounced chamomile. Cam chamomile. What did I say? I think I said chamomile. I don't know. Maybe I don't even know how to pronounce it in American. Help me out. The internet where we cannot see the wood for the digital trees. Oh, that was what I was thinking. Um, without the twist. Robs us of the gift of listening. The dream bird that hatches the egg of experience resembles motionless contemplation. While waiting, it surrenders to an unconscious process. To an external view, it appears inactive, but this inactivity is the condition of the possibility of experience. So I kind of see a little paradox there. I feel sometimes as, Han, as if Han is sort of secularizing and making philosophy of ideas that exist in like eastern religions and spiritualities like here i'm thinking and throughout some of this i'm thinking of the chinese concept of wu wei the effortless action which is a doing nothing but it is a doing but it's a doing nothing or nothing's doing like you can look at both sides of the coin waiting begins only once it is no longer a waiting for something specific 
When we expect something specific, we wait less and close ourselves off from the unconscious process. Waiting begins when there is nothing left to wait for, not even the end of waiting itself. Waiting ignores and destroys what it is waiting for. Waiting waits for nothing. Waiting is the mental attitude of the one who is contemplatively inactive. To such a person, an altogether different reality is revealed, one to which no activity, no action has access. I think there are several important phrases in here. Um, Different reality is the... The latter, um, mental attitude is the former. So I, yeah, so I think that those two phrases are really helpful. I think I'm gonna stop there. Um, I, yeah, I definitely think that. Sorry, um, just making a note where I stopped, at so I can go back and highlight. Um, I think he is doing something pretty unique. Um, It does take me, the way he's articulating things, it does take me a minute to kind of wrap my brain around it. And I don't always know why that is. I mean, I guess I just said because it was, you know, maybe he's doing something unique, but I, and I know I said before, it's because of the distance of the socioeconomic kind of positions that we're coming from, myself and Han. And it's such a weird experience. Let me know what you think.